Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and reading verses 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital at Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. You must stay at home. You must stay at home. None of us will ever forget these words spoken by Boris Johnson on the 23rd of March 2020 as they plunged us into the most traumatic and turbulent season that many, possibly all of us, have ever known. The shops closed, cinemas closed, stadiums closed, businesses closed, schools closed and church buildings closed. Two years on we're beginning to see the easing of these restrictions. It may be happening slower than many of us would like, but we are seeing these restrictions being eased and we're seeing a a return to normality in some respects. But in many ways, we're left with the question, will life ever be the same again? Will the church ever be the same again? And will our congregation ever be the same Again, the year 586 BC was a similarly traumatic and turbulent time in the lives of those living in the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Babylonian army led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and carried off its inhabitants into exile in Babylon. Then in 539 BC, Uh, Babylon fell to Cyrus, the king of Persia, and the following year, a number of Jews returned to their homeland from Babylon. But life wasn't like what it had been like before the exile. The city and its temple needed to be rebuilt. The worship of the Lord needed to be reformed. And the people needed to be revived. And the Lord, in his kindness and in his grace, raised up Two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, to take the lead in this work. So over the next few weeks, over the next few months, in fact, we're going to spend some time in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to see what this book has to teach us as individuals and as a congregation following this traumatic and turbulent season that we have been through. And tonight we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 under three headings as we were introduced to this book. We're going to look at the context, then the concern, and finally the condition. The context, the concern, and the condition. First you have the context. Look at verse 1 down to the beginning of verse 2. Here we're introduced to Nehemiah and his God. We can begin by noting the who at the beginning of verse 1. We're told that the words that we are reading are the words of a man named Nehemiah. This name Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. 
And the words that we are studying are therefore the words of this man whose name means the Lord has comforted and he is writing under the direction and the inspiration of the Spirit. We're also told that he was the son of a man named Hakaliah. The name Hakaliah means the Lord has hidden. And that is all we're told about this man. He was, we're not told anything about his parents. We're not told anything about his background. All we're told is that he was given the name Hakaliah, meaning the Lord has hidden. And in verse 11, we're told that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. This was a very trustworthy position, a very honoured position. Every day, Nehemiah would put his life on the line for the king as he tested and tasted the contents of the king's drinking vessels, the king's goblets, the king's cups. We can move from noting the who to the when in the middle of verse 1. We're told that it was the month of Kislev. This month occurred in what is now mid-November to mid-December. This is the winter. And it's perhaps fitting that the events that we're reading about occurred during a time of winter, since it was also a time of spiritual winter in the land of Judah. It's also interesting to see that while this man Nehemiah is living in Persia, that he still goes by the Jewish calendar as he indicates that it was the Jewish month of Kislev. Although he is living many miles from his home, many miles from his people, and his people have been living many miles away in Persia for the best part of a hundred or so years, Nehemiah still thinks of himself very much as a Jew, and he goes by this Jewish calendar. We're also told that it was the 20th year. Some scholars say that this, uh, this means that it was the 20th year of Nehemiah being cupbearer to the king. But it's more likely that this refers to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes ruled over the Persian Empire from 464 to 423 BC. And so this is the 20th year of his reign. It is the year 444 BC, nearly a half a millennia before the birth of Christ. Finally, we can move from noting the when to the what in the remainder of verse 1 on into verse 2. Nehemiah highlights where he was. Look at verse 1. He was in Susa. This was the winter residence of the kings of Persia. It's located in modern-day Iran. He is now living 900 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah highlights in verse 2 what happened. He was visited by his brother Hanani and some men from Judah. It's likely that he had sent for these men rather than to see these men as simply passing through Susa. And as they passed through Susa, they said, let's call on Nehemiah, our friend and our relative, and see how he's getting on. It's far more likely that he wrote to them and he said, come to me, I need to speak to you about something that is going on. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see what they are telling us about God. Nehemiah is a book about leadership. As we study this book, we'll see that Nehemiah is a good example of spiritual leadership. He sets an example of spiritual leadership. And so if you're an elder tonight, or if you're a deacon tonight, or if you're in some other form of Christian leadership, then this is a book for you. (coughs) Nehemiah is also a book about building. As we study this book, we'll see that Nehemiah is going about the work of building and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so if you're in a church building project, as we are as a congregation, then this is a book for you. Nehemiah is also a book about reformation. 
As we study this book, we'll see how Nehemiah oversees the reform of the people of Judah after the trauma and the turbulence of the Babylonian exile. And so if you have a burden for the people of God, if you have a concern for the people of God after a traumatic event, a turbulent event such as a global pandemic, then this is a book for you. But above all, this book, like the rest of Scripture, is about God, the God of Nehemiah. And these opening verses that focus on Nehemiah's name are highlighting that he is the God who comforts. He is the God who restores repentant individuals and repentant congregations because he is a God of amazing grace. He is the God of the second chance. He is the God who comforts. And so the opening question that we can begin this series asking is, do you believe in this God? Do you know this God? Do you know the God who is revealed in Christ, who delights in restoring those who have failed? Delights in restoring those who have fallen. Delights in restoring those who have been faithless. Do you know the God who is revealed in Christ, who said to his people in Isaiah's day, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Do you know the God who is revealed in Christ? Who comforts? Do you know the God of Nehemiah? Maybe some of us know the God of Hakaliah, the God who simply hides his face, the God who simply remains hidden. But this chapter is encouraging us to know the God of Nehemiah, the God who comforts, the God who restores the God of grace toward individuals and toward churches. We move, though, from the context to the concern. Look at verse 2. We can now hear Nehemiah's concern for the Lord's people and the Lord's cause. As Nehemiah speaks to his brother and these men from Judah, we can hear his concern for the Lord's people. We read, and I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, the Jews who had survived the exile, Now this reference to the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, can have a number of meanings. Uh, Some see this as referring to the descendants of uh, those who had managed to avoid being taken into exile in Babylon back in 586 BC. Because we know that there were a number of Jews who managed to avoid that exile. Uh, Others see this as referring to the descendants of those who had returned from exile with Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the priest, in 538 BC during the ascension of Cyrus of Persia. And still others see this as referring to those who had returned from exile with Ezra, the priest and scribe, in 458 BC, about 13 years before the birth and time of Nehemiah. It makes most sense, though, to see this as a reference to all the Jews who are living in Judah. Doesn't matter what time they came from, Nehemiah has a concern for all the Jews. He has a concern for the welfare of the Lord's people. But as Nehemiah speaks to his brother and the men from Judah, we can also hear that he has a concern for not only the Lord's people, but also the Lord's Look again at the verse 2. We read, and I asked them concerning Jerusalem. 
The city of Jerusalem was so central to the Lord's plans, the Lord's purposes, the Lord's promises, the Lord's program, not only for his people, but for the world. This was the city where the Lord had chosen to concentrate his presence in the temple. You remember how the temple is built in Jerusalem and the reason the temple is there is that the Lord might dwell among his people, that he might be present among them. This was the city where the priests would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. This was the city where the kings from David's line would come from. This was the city which the prophets anticipated as being a channel of blessing, not only to the people of Judah, but to the nations. As you read the Old Testament, you see this great hope that in Jerusalem, it's going to be like a funnel. It's going to be like a filter through which the Lord's blessing is going to be poured out on his people, but also on the whole world. The city of Jerusalem was key. It was central in the Lord's saving plan, in the Lord's redemptive plan. And as we hear Nehemiah speaking, we can see that he's concerned about how Jerusalem, this city, is fading. He wants to know about the welfare of the Lord's cause. He wants to know, is the Lord's cause prospering and flourishing 900 miles away? Is the Lord's holy city functioning as this channel of blessing to the nations? Now friends, as we consider this verse, we can see that it's showing us where our concern ought to be rooted and where our concern ought to be centred. We can see where Nehemiah's concern was rooted and centred. There he is, and he's living hundreds of miles away from the land of Judah and from the city of Jerusalem. And he's immersed in Persian society, and he's advanced in Persian society. He's got a very high-paying position, a very high-ranking position. He is the cupbearer to the king. You didn't get a higher position than this as a Jew living in Persia. But his primary concern as he speaks with his brother and the men from Judah is the welfare of the Lord's people and the welfare of the Lord's cause. And that concern, friends, ought to be evident in the life of every single Christian. The mark of an authentic relationship with the Lord, the mark of a living relationship with the Lord, the mark of a vibrant relationship with the Lord is that we have a healthy concern for his people and for his cause. And I know and I rejoice in saying this that many of you do. I speak to those of you who are getting out and about these days and and you ask me how various people in the congregation are doing. You say, how's so-and-so doing? Have you been to see so-and-so? How are they getting on? I speak to those who are housebound, and, and it's amazing. When I go and see some of the housebound people in our congregation, they list off, they rattle off this great list of names of people whom they're praying for. And after they've listed off this list of names of people whom they're praying for, they go on to ask, and how's the church doing? How are the services doing? Is anyone new coming out to the services? Is anyone new coming out to the prayer meeting? You know, friends, it is a beautiful thing. It is a heartwarming thing to pastor a congregation, to pastor a people, to pastor a flock of the Lord Jesus Christ who have such a concern for the Lord's people and the Lord's cause. I love that. There's nothing worse than when you meet the Lord's people and all they want to do is grumble about things. But when you're meeting the Lord's people in the high free and they're saying, how are the Lord's people doing? How is the Lord's cause doing? It 
thrills me, it excites me. But what if you're sitting here tonight or you're listening online and you don't have such a concern? What if you're here tonight or you're listening online and you really couldn't care less about how the Lord's people and how the Lord's cause are doing? Tim Trumper, who was a professor in Westminster Theological Seminary, has just accepted a call uh, to, uh, to Asia uh, answers the, this question as follows. He writes, If concern for the church isn't our sentiment, then it is likely that we are in the church, but not in Christ, or that we are in Christ, but we are in need of the reviving of which the scripture speaks. I'll say that again. If concern for the church isn't our sentiment, then it is likely that we are in the church, but not in Christ, or that we are in Christ, but we are in need of the reviving of which the scripture speaks. And so this evening, as we hear Nehemiah speaking with his brother and these men from Judah, I want to ask, do you share Nehemiah's concern about the Lord's people? Do you share Nehemiah's concern about the Lord's cause? And if not, friend, then why not? Is it because you are in the church but not in Christ? Or is it because you are in Christ but you are in need of the reviving of which the scripture speaks? Do you share the concern of Nehemiah? Third and finally, we come to the condition. Look at verse 3. And here we can see Nehemiah receiving a report about the condition of the Lord's people and the Lord's cause. At the beginning of verse 3, Nehemiah hears about the condition of the Lord's people. Hanani tells his brother that the people are in great trouble. Now that word great trouble is incredibly strong language in the Hebrew. It's language that depicts danger and disaster, calamity and catastrophe. And furthermore, Hanani tells his brother that not only are the people in great trouble, but they are also experiencing shame. That language of shame depicts reproach, disgrace, scorn. The peoples who are living around the Jews who have returned to their homeland don't admire them. They don't see anything praiseworthy about them. They don't come up to the Jews who have returned to their homeland and say to them, you have done so well since coming back to, from exile. Your God has really blessed you. Your God has really prospered you. Isn't your God good? No, there is none of that. They look down on them. They ridicule them. They say what a pathetic people and not only are they a pathetic people, but their God must be pretty pathetic. Then in the second half of verse 3, it gets worse because Nehemiah then hears not only about the condition of the Lord's people, but also the condition of the Lord's cause, the city of Jerusalem. Hanani tells him that the city has been destroyed. It has been left in a desolate condition. The walls of the city have been broken down. They've been reduced to a, a pile of rubble. The gates of the city have been burned to the ground. 
They've been reduced to a mound of ashes. In 2 Kings 25, we're given a very vivid description of how this happened when the Babylonians came to Jerusalem in 586 BC. We read, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord. And he burned the king's house. And he burned all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And as we hear about the desolate condition of this city, it's important that we note how much this would have distressed and disturbed Nehemiah. You see, in Ezra, in Ezekiel chapter 5, the prophet Ezekiel had predicted and prophesied what would happen to Jerusalem as a result of her sin, what would happen to Jerusalem as a result of her rebellion. Ezekiel had said, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw my eye will not spare and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you and a third part I will scatter or exile to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Dreadful calamity. But in Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel had prophesied and predicted that there would be a restoration. The Lord would comfort his people. We read, thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered or exiled and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. So there was a promise of restoration. But there's no evidence of that happening in the report that Nehemiah receives. Now think about this, friends. Just think about this. 142 years have passed since the Babylonians came and burned down Jerusalem. Over 90 years have passed since Zerubbabel and Joshua had returned to Jerusalem. And about 13 years have passed since Ezra returned to Jerusalem to try and get things going again. And in all that time, the city has remained in this desolate, burned out, broken down condition. There's no evidence of the long promised restoration that Ezekiel had spoken of. And Nehemiah has to hear this distressing, disturbing report. He's thinking, what on earth is going on? Well, friends, as we consider these verses, they're pushing us to give serious and honest consideration to the condition of the church. Serious and honest consideration 
to the present condition of the Lord's people and the Lord's cause. That's what we see in Nehemiah. He had expressed his concern regarding the welfare of the Lord's people and regarding the welfare of the Lord's cause. And he's told that the people are experiencing trouble and shame while their city, the holy city, Jerusalem, lies in ruins. And Nehemiah takes this seriously. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't pretend that it's not happening. He records it in this account of his life. And as we'll see in verses 4 to 11, it prompts him to pray to the Lord. It prompts him to pray to the God who comforts. And you know, friends, that is such important applications for ourselves. You know, friends, there is so much that I am thankful for concerning our congregation as we continue our journey out of lockdown. So much. I'm so thankful to see the efforts that so many people are making to be at services to be at prayer meetings. Even this evening, it's wonderful to see so many people coming out. I'm thankful to see so many people rolling up their sleeves, trying to get things going, get things moving forward, get the congregation rolling again. I'm so thankful to see new faces coming along. And and if you've been coming to our services over the last few weeks or the last few months, I really hope, friend, that you will find a haven and a home within our congregation. I'm really thankful to see some of the things that are going on in this congregation. But we also have to be realists and consider the devastating impact that the last two years of lockdown and isolation and restrictions has had on our congregation. It's had an impact on the numbers attending the services. It's had an impact on the numbers attending the prayer meetings. It's had an impact on the numbers attending the Sunday school. It's had an impact on the numbers attending the youth fellowship. Now please hear me clearly and carefully. I know that there are those within the congregation with legitimate health concerns and infirmities that are preventing them from coming out. I know that. And I'm aware that the weather has made coming out to church over the last two weeks incredibly difficult for some and impossible for others. I know that, friends. I am aware of that. I am, I am not indifferent to any of that. But you know what worries me? And what worries many ministers that I am speaking to these days is that for some people it has become comfortable and convenient to stay at home. On the laptop, the iPad, the iPhone, rather than gathering with the Lord's people to magnify the Lord's name. That really worries me. When it's not a matter of they can't come, but they won't come. And what really worries me and what really worries other ministers that I'm speaking to is that others have drifted. Others have become disengaged from the life of their congregations, maybe even become disengaged from the Lord himself, and they're showing no interest, no intention of ever coming back. Now, friends, I am not saying this to have a go. Those of you who know me know where I stand on these things. So I'm not saying this to have a go. And I'm not saying this to depress you this evening. I'm saying this because we need to be realists. 
because it is only when we are realistic about our condition that we will really pray to the Lord who comforts. It is only when we are realistic about our condition that we will pray with the same conviction that we will see Nehemiah praying with in verses 4 to 11. Again, quoting Tim Trumper, we bury our heads in the sand if we don't see the troubles, shames, struggles, afflictions of Christ's church. When God starts to revive his people, he gets our heads out the sand. We don't simply rejoice in the comforts of the gospel. We also give serious consideration to ourselves and to the church. We see our true condition. So friends, this evening, let us give very careful consideration to our condition as a congregation. Let's give serious consideration to our condition as a congregation. The fruit that we are seeing, but also maybe the frailties that have been exposed. And let's use this as a launch pad from which we will go to the Lord, the Redeemer of the Church, the Head of the Church, the Comforter of the Church, in persistent prayer, in passionate prayer, in persevering prayer. You know, it can be very easy at times to say, goodness, the church isn't what it was like before lockdown. I don't really like the way church is these days. It can be very easy at times to say, well, I'm not seeing so-and-so coming out to church these days. What on earth is going on with them? It can be very easy at times to look back and then look at the present and say things aren't really like what we would like them to be. But you know, friends, What we'll see in Nehemiah is that he looks at the condition of the Lord's cause and the Lord's people. He gives it serious, careful, honest evaluation. And it prompts him to pray. Will you pray for our congregation?